Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast dedicated to Michigan history and morbidly amazing stories buried deep and not so deep in our family trees. I'm your long story long podcast host, Holly Kaur, and today's episode is not only a series of stories, it's a game. Have you ever watched The Masked Singer? Well, I haven't, but I sort of understand the premise. We are not going to play The Masked Singer, however that works, but we are going to play a game I made up and then stole the name, but I call it Masked Michigan Native. I'm going to tell you about some famous people you may or may not know that are from Michigan. These people were considered famous at one time and lived in our glorious state at one time. I'll give you hints throughout the story, but yes, I'm burying the lead on purpose, which is how I do. I also realize that all of these masked Michigan natives are dudes, so we will do one on the ladies for the next season. Are you ready for the first edition of Masked Michigan Natives? Guy's version. Dear listeners, let's go. His name was Burton. And his father's name was Burton, too, which makes things not confusing. But let's start with Burton's father, Burton. Confused yet? This is Burton Sr. we are discussing. He was either born in Eaton Rapids, Michigan, or Aurelius, Michigan, which is a township near Mason, Michigan, which is just outside of Lansing, but it's like in the country. Burton Sr., whose middle name was Milo, was born July 9th, 1906, to his parents, John Burton and Effie. John and Effie raised their son around the greater Lansing area, but they also seemed to have a short stint in Utah, where John was working as a carpenter during the 1920 census. John and Effie came to their senses and moved back to Lansing before their boy, Burton, was 20. In 1926, in the city of Lansing, Michigan, Burton Milo married a woman named Fern Miller. They had Nancy in 1930 and little Burton Leon in 1936. Oh, all the Burtons, all of them. Burton Sr., his wife Fern, their daughter Nancy, and little Burton Leon lived on Denora Street in Lansing, specifically 1700 Denora Street. The house is still there. For you Lanstronauts, or Lansingites, or whatever you want to call yourselves who are from the Lansing area, Donora is located just off of Mount Hope near Pennsylvania. But time was ticking up or down to the 1940s and the start of a world war. Burton Sr. was drafted into the Army and became a lieutenant during World War II. He was in the first wave that hit Normandy Beach and was awarded the Bronze Star. He went on to fight in the Battle of the Rhine River, the Argonne Forest, and the bridge at Ramagon. I mean, wow. Burton Sr.'s wife, Fern, decided to move her children first to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for two years to be near her husband while he was stationed there. But when he went overseas to fight, Fern brought the kids to Fern's hometown in Lake City, Michigan, which is up by Cadillac, Michigan. After the war in 1946, the family relocated to Riviera Beach, Florida. Burton Jr. was about 14 years old. Burton Sr. became a police chief and was a hero in his son's eyes. But let us turn our focus to Burton Leon, a.k.a. Burton Jr. While in junior high, he befriended a kid named James, or Jimmy, Hooks. Jimmy didn't really have a family. His father was not around, and his mother was an alcoholic. I actually found Jimmy on a census when he was 14, living in Missouri with a foster family. But now, he was in Florida, and now, his best buddy was Burton Jr. Burton's family gave Jimmy a home. They took the teen in, and he just became part of the family. Side note. When Jimmy was in his mid-40s, the family legally adopted him, even changing his last name to theirs. I think that's so cool, and I would totally do this for one of my kids' friends if they needed it. All right, so back to Bert and Leon. 
When he was in 10th grade at Palm Beach High School, he was named first team All-State and All-Southern as a fullback. He was a sophomore in high school. He received multiple scholarship offers and decided to play halfback for Florida State University in 1954. Burton had a blast in college. He joined the Phi Delta Theta fraternity and roomed with a guy named Lee Corso. He had an amazing freshman year. But during his sophomore season, he injured his knee and then lost his spleen. It didn't, like, pop out during a game or anything. Burton had been in a terrible car accident, injured his other knee, the good one, and then out came his spleen. Surgically, that is. During this time, Burton really struggled and didn't go back to Florida State for two years. However, he wasn't a giver-upper. Yet. Burton enrolled at Palm Beach Junior College to keep up his studies and then re-enrolled at Florida State in 1957. But his days of being a football star were over. The injuries he had sustained to his knees slowed him down. He quit. Oh, but football's loss was Hollywood's gain, eventually. Burton had been bitten by the acting bug while at Palm Beach Junior College and while something I haven't mentioned. Burton? was hot. I mean, like, he was foxy. Very good-looking dude. He eventually made it to Hollywood, and whenever he was interviewed or asked where he was from, he would smile at his adoring fans and with pride state, my name is Burton Leon, and I am from Waycross, Georgia. Waycross, Georgia? What? Uh, no, Burton, no. You are from Lansing, Michigan. So, who is this star? I bet some of you already know. Go ahead and just say it out loud to prove it to yourself. Come on, I'll say it with you. Ready? One, two, three. Blah, blah, blah. Meh. I'm going to give some more hints for any Gen Xers or Millennials or Gen Zers or whatever generation my kids are in. Burton received a huge acting break when he starred on Gunsmoke, Smokey and the Bandit, The Longest Yard, and he was almost Han Solo in Star Wars. He turned that down and regretted it, but I don't. And actually, Burton turned down several amazing classic roles for crappy, floppy ones. He starred in many, many movies and even had his own sitcom called Evening Shade in the early 90s. He was even nominated for an Oscar for the film Boogie Nights. Got it now? Got the name? Of course, Burton Leon is... Turd Ferguson. Alright, I'm just kidding. It's Burt Leon Reynolds, known professionally as Burt Reynolds, straight from Waycross, Georgia. (laughs) Ha! Just kidding. He finally admitted in 2015 that he was born in Lansing, Michigan. Wow. Gee, thanks. Maybe Michigan doesn't want to acknowledge you, Burt Reynolds. Did you ever think of that? Also, Burt died in 2018. But the house that the Reynolds family lived in is still there, and please do me this favor. Look it up on Google Maps. 1700 Donora Road or Street, Lansing, Michigan. Now, this fun little thing won't work unless you look it up, so don't go driving by or you will miss all the fun right there on that front porch. Little side note. It appears the Reynolds family moved out of Lansing around the early 1940s at the beginning of World War II. Well, just seven years later, a family moved into a house nearby on Mount Hope Road. My husband's grandparents, Leo and Fran Corr. They were almost neighbors with future Burt Reynolds. But of course, he probably wouldn't have become a major star if he hadn't moved away, right? Insert significant amounts of eye-rolling here. Alright, listeners, you ready for our next masked Michigan native? This one was born in 1964 to Judith and Sam, and his name was David. He was born in Beaumont Hospital in Birmingham, Michigan. Judith was a writer and magazine editor while her husband Wayne was a sales representative. 
The couple had two boys, Brian and Andy, when little David was born. I'm not sure where the family was living at the time of David's birth, but I suspect it was somewhere around the hospital, perhaps in Bloomfield Village, which is where David's father, Wayne, had lived with his parents before he got married. When David was four, the family moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. David's parents divorced, and he and his brothers were primarily raised by their mother in, quote, relative poverty. David graduated from Saguaro High School. I think I said that right. Saguaro. It's a cactus, I think. There's a G in it, which is really trying to play tricks with my mind. I'm going to try to say this one more time. Saguaro. (laughs) Please, please go ahead and correct me. Okay, don't. All right. So then he went to Scottsdale Community College. He transferred to Arizona State University, but he dropped out because... He was doing so well with stand-up comedy. Hmm, that was a big hint. David was cast in Police Academy 4 in 1987 after a talent agent saw him perform at the Improv in L.A. A friend of David's named Dennis Miller got David the ultimate break. A writer with Saturday Night Live and then a cast member. So, dear listeners, who is this David? Do you need a few more hints or do you have it? Some of his characters include a flight attendant for Total Bastard Airlines. Bye-bye. He played a receptionist for Dick Clark, who would ask people, and you are? He had multiple characters, but one of the best was in the film Tommy Boy with his friend Chris Farley. Of course, I'm talking about David Spade born in Birmingham, Michigan. Want to know what David remembers about Michigan? Quote, snow and a tornado. (laughs) But he has said he loves returning to the Mitten State as it just feels like home. Aw, that's so nice. Especially since, you know, some people don't acknowledge our state as their home state. Side note, I didn't realize that David's brother Andy had married a woman named Kate. Yes, Kate Spade. She was a well-known fashion designer who committed suicide, and she was David's sister-in-law. Next masked Michigan native? Oh, this one is a doozy. Also, I will probably never have guessed this one. Stephen. Stephen was born in Lansing, Michigan in 1952. His father's name was Samuel, also known as Saul. Saul was born in Russia to Jewish parents who immigrated to the United States sometime before 1928 when Saul was born. Their last name was Seigelman, but they changed it by the 1950s. Saul was one of the youngest of the children. There were at least nine. Of these nine children, two of them became doctors. Now, the family were living in Rhode Island, but for some reason, and I'm thinking it was a university reason, Saul came to Michigan, specifically East Lansing. In his engagement announcement, it states that Saul is living in Quonset Hut 68. (laughs) Actually, no, it says Quonset 68, East Lansing. Quonset, I think I'm saying that right. Man, I'm full of doubt today. I found this interesting because my memory bank sort of remembered something about Quonset huts at Michigan State. So I had to look it up, which is why I never get anything done. According to On the Banks of the Red Cedar website by Michigan State University, there were many options when it came to student housing. One of the options was a Quonset hut. From the website, quote, In 1945, approximately 30 acres of a poultry plant next to the Michigan State Police Headquarters were cleared to make room for a village of 450 trailers. Let's pause the quote here in case you are familiar with the area. The area that the article is referring to is the east side of Harrison Road. Continuing with the quote. Brought in from various Michigan towns' emergency war housing projects, They were used to shelter the growing student enrollment. The huts mostly housed returning veterans and their families who were among the first married students to enroll at the university. 104 steel quonsets were erected. 
14 men slept in bunk beds at one end with a common room at the other end used for study and recreation. One oversized hut served as the housing community's cafeteria. End of that long quote. Apparently, Shaw Hall was built followed by other dorms which made the Quonset huts obsolete. Also, married housing and university apartments were also built for the families attending MSU. But I have to tell you, I'm pretty sure my grandfather lived in one of these huts when he attended Michigan State College in 1945. I remember him telling me about them. Also, I wonder if he knew Saul because Saul went to school to be a math teacher. My grandfather went to school to be a veterinarian, but ended up going into education. Saul married Patricia Ann Fisher from Nashville, Michigan on June 9, 1949. Together, they were in a car accident. Patricia was taken to St. Lawrence Hospital after their car was hit. It was suspected she had some internal injuries, but she would recover. And she did. She also had a baby, Stephen, in 1952. Because of her son's health, or perhaps to help her husband's career, they moved to California. Well then, bye. We understand. It happens. And this move happened because little Stephen was struggling with his health. Here is a quote from Patricia printed in People magazine. Stephen was frail and suffered from asthma. He was a puny kid back then, but he really thrived after the move from Michigan. End quote. Yes, please blame Michigan. Stephen graduated from Buna Park High School in Buna Park, California, and then Fullerton College in the early 70s. He began training in the martial arts, married a Japanese woman, and hid from the Vietnam War draft by moving to Japan with her. There is a whole thing on Wikipedia, with sources, by the way, about how Stephen seems to have been a pathological liar, elevating himself and his accolades. Be that as it may, he became an actor after returning to the United States in the early 80s. So, dear listeners, raise your hand if you know who this masked Michigan native is. Do you have it? I'm waiting. This person, born in 1952 at perhaps St. Lawrence or Sparrow Hospital, starred in Above the Law, Hard to Kill, Under Siege, and The Patriot. None of these I have seen, well, except for The Patriot, because it's about the Revolutionary War. And the answer is Steven Seagal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's done a lot more than just those movies, including many, many, many direct-to-video films. He also claims to be the best friend of Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Next up. Leslie Lynch King. He was born Leslie Lynch King on July 14, 1913. Now, I have a friend named Leslie, and he was actually in my wedding and a huge supporter of this podcast, one of our closest friends. He is named after his father, so everyone calls him Junior or June. Hi, June. Leslie Lynch King was also named after his father, making him a junior. Coincidentally, I have a source stating that Leslie Lynch Jr.'s mother also called him June, but not quite. She called him Junie, which would evolve over time to a different nickname that I'm not revealing just yet. I have to confess, though, Leslie was not born in our great state. He was born in Omaha, Nebraska, but for the rest of his life, he called Michigan home. When he was born, Leslie and his parents were living with his father's parents. His grandfather, Charles Henry King, was a prominent banker, and Leslie's father, Leslie, was a wool trader. The marriage between Leslie Sr. and his wife, Dorothy, was not a very good one. It seems Leslie Sr. had a jealous, mean, possessive, violent side. While on their honeymoon, Les Sr. cuffed his wife when she smiled at a man. When the newborn baby, Leslie Jr., was just a few days, days old, Les Sr. took a knife and threatened to not only kill Dorothy, but also the new baby and the nursemaid. This nightmare with legs had actually been indicted for beating one of his employees, but he wasn't alone in this beating. His father, Charles King, had helped him out. 
Dorothy knew she had to get out of this disaster of a marriage, and she had to do so quickly. So, when little Leslie was just 16 days old, Dorothy fled to her sister, oh, I love this name, but I cannot pronounce it, Tennessee? Well, Tanat, Tennessee. Tennessee? Yeah. T-A-N-N-I-S-S-E. I just like it, but I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyways, uh, Dorothy fled to her sister's home in Oak Park, Illinois. But from there, Dorothy went further north to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Remember, little Leslie is only 16 days old. Well, I mean, maybe he's 25 days old now. It may have taken time to, like, travel. Okay, anyway, this was where Dorothy's parents had moved to after living in Illinois. Dorothy filed for divorce and then sued her ex-husband for child support. Dude, if you F.A. with Dorothy, you gonna F.O. Of course, Leslie King Sr. refused to pay because his daddy had just fired him for some mismanaging of a warehouse and for just acting like a shitty human who probably needed help with substance abuse. So Charles King stepped up and paid the money. He actually paid Dorothy until 1930 when his grandson, little Leslie, was 17 years old. Leslie grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He attended South High School, graduated in 1931 in the top 5% of his class. He was named the most popular senior by his classmates. He worked at a local restaurant and played center on his football team. But a lot had changed with Leslie Lynch Jr. See, when he was two years old, his mother remarried a man who owned a paint store in Grand Rapids. This man never revealed that he wasn't Leslie's biological father, and it was a family secret that would keep until Leslie was 17 years old. Now, there had been some inferences and such, so Leslie sort of suspected that his father wasn't his bio father, but Leslie thought he resembled the man quite a bit. Still, this day in Leslie's history was a big one. It was the day he met his biological father, Leslie Sr. Leslie told the story in his own words. Quote, I was working at a restaurant across the high school where I was going to school, and I used to work from 11.30 to 1, making hamburgs and wash dishes and take money that people paid for those kind of lousy lunches we served, but, uh, I was standing there working one day in this restaurant my senior year in high school. I noticed the man standing across from the rather narrow store, standing in front of the candy counter. He stood there for a long time, and he was a stranger, And finally, as I was handling some food or washing dishes, he walked across and said, Leslie, I am your father. I was a little startled, first to be identified as Leslie. Then he said, yes, I am your father. I was divorced from your mother. He said, want to go out to lunch? (laughs) Would you go out to lunch with me? I was really startled, and I spoke to Bill Scrooge's, great name, who was the great proprietor of this Hamburg joint, and I said, Bill, something's come up. This gentleman wants to see me. He says he's my father. Hmm, can I be excused? And Bill Scrooges, who was a very great guy, said, yes. So I took my apron off and went off with my real father. And he had just come from Riverton, Wyoming to Detroit to pick up a new Lincoln. The difficult part of the whole thing was going home that night and telling my stepfather and my mother what had happened and what had transpired. Okay, this story kind of made me laugh. Oh, that's the end of the quote. And that was me listening to Leslie say the quote. So it was really difficult to transcribe that. Anyway, don't you feel like that story was just a little bit way too casual? Like, (laughs) yo, I'm your dad. Want to have lunch? Uh, sure, yes, that sounds great. Let's do that. Where have you been? Why do you have the money to buy a Lincoln, but you can't pay child support? We are living in almost poverty. Look at me. I am in this Hamburg joint making pennies and nickels, but you are getting a Lincoln. The takeaway from all of this was that Leslie and his family were struggling financially, yet there was his father traveling across the country to pick up a hot new car but he had never sent any money to help raise his son. Now, the grandfather did, but not him. Okay, so do you know who Leslie Lynch King was? Sorry, Leslie Lynch King Jr. was. 
Let me give you some further hints, because I know some of you already know. But he attended U of M and became a football star with offers to play for the Detroit Lions and the Green Bay Packers. Have you heard of him now? The famous center from the Wolverines? Okay, maybe that's now how you know him because he never went pro. Although he did have offers from the Detroit Lions and Green Bay Packers, he decided instead to go to law school. But the world changed his mind again because he enlisted in the Navy after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and shipped out five months later, serving until 1946. Any guesses now? How about some more hints? He was a model, a famous model, who graced the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine while in his Navy uniform in April of 1942. Still don't have a clue? He got married to a fellow Grand Rapids native who was a classical ballet dancer. Her name was Elizabeth Bloomer. Certainly you know the husband of Betty Bloomer, right? Well, I'm just going to keep on going with the hints, and this one will give it all away. Leslie went into politics. He served in the House of Reps for the state of Michigan and was selected to serve on the Warren Commission. You know, the people who did a deep dive on John F. Kennedy's assassination. You should listen to the report. Don't read it. Listen to it. It's actually extremely interesting. Also, I wasn't going to do this, but did you know that Lyndon Johnson pretty much had to force um, Warren? What was his first name? I don't know. He was a Supreme Court judge, I believe. Um, judge Warren to serve on the Warren Commission, he didn't want to do it. So don't try to tell me that these people were paid off to lie. They weren't. Uh, I'm going to stop now. All right, so Leslie became House Minority Leader in 1965, and then he became Vice President in 1973, and then President in 1974, never having been elected to either office. Yes, yes, you know this man. Because see, when Leslie was a teenager, he legally changed his name to his stepfather's name. He named himself after the man who raised him, but who apparently never legally adopted him. Leslie Lynch King Jr. became Gerald Rudolph Ford Jr. And his mother went from calling him Junie to calling him Jerry. This was the man who served as president when I was born. He and Betty are buried in Grand Rapids, right next to the freeway, actually. His boyhood home is located at 649 Union Avenue in Grand Rapids, and the people who reside there absolutely know whose home they live in, because there's a couple of historical markers on the house. Our next masked Michigan native hails from Detroit, Michigan. Born, raised, never disowned, this guy embraced his Michigangster and actually still lives here. I mean, everybody who's anybody knows this guy defines Detroit. That's how my nine-year-old daughter pronounces it. Detroit, Detroit, the French way. This masked Michigan native is named Robert Clark. He was the son of Charlotte and Stuart. He also had an older brother named George. Robert's father, Stuart, had grown up in Sheboygan, Michigan, which is almost to the tippy-top of the mitten. Stewart's family ended up moving to Alpena, Michigan, which is southeast of Sheboygan, taking U.S. 23 along that Michigan coast. Thank the Lord above that they did move to Alpena because that is where he met the lovely Charlotte Zado or Zado or Zadow, who would become his wife. Charlotte and Stewart were married in 1937 in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. My parents were married in Mount Pleasant, or maybe it was Big Rapids. But I know they spent the night in Mount Pleasant, their wedding night, because my mom told me. <laughs> she showed me where the hotel was, but I think it's gone now. Anyways, Mount Pleasant is absolutely where I spent four years of my life whilst attending Central Michigan University. Anywho, Stuart became a medical technician for the Ford Motor Company, so the couple moved to Dearborn Heights, which is near Dearborn, which is near Detroit. 
Stewart and Charlotte welcomed a baby boy named George Stewart in 1941, and then little Robert Clark was born at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan on May 6, 1945 at 1.17 a.m. Just kidding. I don't know what time he was born. Anyway. The 1950 census had the family living at 4109 Syracuse Street in Dearborn Heights, and this house is still standing. It's a cute little house on a corner, and I always wonder, do these people know who lived there before them? Right? I mean, Gerald Ford's people do, but do these people know? Anyhow, little Robert was growing up. When he was five, the family made another move to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Home? Right? We all know this. University of Michigan. At home, things seemed to be fine. The family was enjoying a middle-class lifestyle. However, Robert's father, Stuart, wasn't happy with Michigan or his marriage or something, but 100% probably his career. This stand-up guy deserted his wife, Charlotte, and his two sons. Robert was 10 years old. After Stewie's move to California... The family he abandoned struggled hard financially, and Charlotte did the best she could to raise her two boys. George and Robert attended Tappan Junior High School. But Robert's older brother, George, he was kind of a problem, and it 100% probably was because his father had left the family. George was getting into a lot of trouble and would hang out on Ann Street in Ann Arbor and he would hang out inside of the pool halls where the hustlers and the losers were. Robert's mother trusted her younger son and sent him to find his brother quite often, just a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old walking down Main Street of Ann Arbor, and something was waking up inside of little Robert. In the early 60s, Robert was attending Pioneer High School. He also briefly attended Lincoln Park High School. He was a little too tall, and he probably could have used a few pounds, but he was doing pretty well at track and field. Still, I don't think track was his passion. Robert was a clean-cut kid, but he was young, restless, and bored. So he and his buddies would have grassers, which might not be what you think. (laughs) And it may be what you think. Robert was sort of determined not to become addicted to drugs and alcohol because of his older brother. So, grassers were parties they would have out past the cornfields, kind of like where the woods would get really heavy, between Dexter and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let's pause right here. Do you have any guesses as to who our masked Michigan native is yet? Do you already know? I'm pretty sure I gave it away, like, several times, probably when I said the name Robert. But, (laughs) let's continue, just in case. Okay. So Robert had graduated from high school in 1963, attended a vocational school, and followed in his dad's footsteps by working at Ford Motor Company. Just kidding. No vocational school. But Robert did follow in his father's path. Just not how you might think. You see, Stewart had left his youngest boy with something before he abandoned him for California. A love for music. Robert is quoted as saying, quote, My dad made a big deal when I was, like, four years old about the fact that I sang I'm looking over a four-leaf clover in the back of his 49 Buick. He just went nuts over that. I think that was maybe the first inclination for me. End quote. See, while Stuart was working at Ford all those years, he was also in a band and played at clubs around Ann Arbor and Detroit. He handed his little four-year-old son Robert a ukulele and taught him how to play it. Perhaps it was Stuart's love of music, his dream to pursue a musical career, which is why he left his family. Which really, I don't give a chicken fried crap. If you have a dream to pursue, you don't leave your family. But you all know that. Back to Robert. Before he even graduated in 1961, he was fronting a three-piece band called The Decibels with friends from high school. In 1964, somebody actually produced a demo recording session for Robert. They had one popular song that got played one time on the radio. That was it. It flopped. Robert joined several more bands and then formed his own in the late 60s. Finally, in 1968, his band was signed with Capitol Records, 
and they had a hit in Michigan, which turned into a number 17 hit nationwide. The name of the song was... Do I tell you, or will it give it all away at this point? I'm going to hold off just a little longer. So Robert had more failures, but he never quit. But if he did quit, he would stop quitting, and he would, like, keep going. Right. In 1974, he formed a new band, and they had a couple of big albums. Live Bullet, recorded at Kobo Arena, and an album released in October of 1976. Night Moves. Of course, you know now who I'm talking about, right? The one and only Bob Seger. Bob would go on to have so much more fame and be inducted into the Hall of Fame. He continued to live right here in Michigan, although he did rent some places in California and Florida. Michigan is not just the backdrop for a lot of his songs, two of which I mentioned previously, Main Street and Night Moves. Michigan is the forefront of his whole life. On Ancestry, there are public records of some of the places Bob lived or houses he has owned. There's one in Orchard Lake, Michigan, which seems like your typical famous person's home. Big. There is a house in Naples, Florida, too, right on the Gulf, that also looks the part. But you should see the house in Traverse City that I suspect Bob's brother George lived in before his death in 2021. There is also an unassuming house in Birmingham, Michigan, but I have no idea the link to that one. Perhaps Bob's mother had lived there because she died in nearby Royal Oak in 1989. As recently as 2023, Bob told NPR that he still had a house in Ann Arbor or near Ann Arbor because this is his home. As far as I can tell, Bob never left his family to pursue his dreams. Yes, he married and divorced, I think a few times, but he took care of his brother and mama until each one died. Unlike Stuart Seeger, who left Michigan behind, perhaps hoping for a music career in California because, you know, you just can't make it here in Michigan. Stuart died in an apartment fire in 1969, just as his son Robert was starting to make a name for himself and getting some success with Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. I'm sure he actually did know that his son Bob had a hit song. There are so many of Bob's songs that I just love, 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 but the truth is I used to hate, hate, hate them. All of them. It was one of those weird things about being little and also how music can connect us to feelings from our past. See, my mom used to work late on Wednesdays, and her boyfriend would put his Against the Wind album on the record player and sit in the living room with his two kids joining him. Yes, sometimes I would be in there too, but a lot of the time, I would be sitting by myself in the kitchen waiting for my mama's headlights to come up over the hill. The songs from that album used to evoke feelings of loneliness and just like the pain of missing the heck out of my mom. And it was only when I was really, really little, like four years old, like maybe four, five, six years old. But I grew more comfortable in the house and with life, I guess. I don't know. But there was a change with Bob Seger's music and myself when I was in college. I got like the best of CD from one of those CD clubs. And my stepbrother has always loved Bob Seger. One summer, I was hanging out with my stepbrother and his friend and my friend Kelly, and we were in Charlotte, and Chad suddenly couldn't find his Bob Seger tape or CD, but I feel like it was a tape. So we drove all the way to the west side of Lansing, went to Meyer there on Saginaw, and Chad bought the tape. We drove the back roads to Charlotte, blasting those amazing songs and singing at the top of our lungs. Just one more thing about Bob Seger. My favorite song of his, which is probably even like in the top 100 of my favorite songs of all time, You'll Accompany Me. He also holds my most hated song of all time. Yes, the song that I hate the most in this world. Old Time of Rock and Roll. It was on my Do Not Playlist at my wedding reception. <laughs> Sorry, Bobbo. <laughs> And thank you. Thank you for my favorite song and my least favorite song. All right, 
Here's the last one, dear listeners. Charles Whedon Westover. Known to all as Charlie or Chuck. We're going to go with Chuck. He was born on December 30th, 1934 in Grand Rapids to another Bert, dang it, and Leon Westover. The family seems to have had roots in West Michigan for a long time, ancestors coming in through Canada and before that New York. Coopersville, where little Chuck grew up, is northwest of Grand Rapids off of I-96. If you recall from Season 1, Episode 10, The Wheatons Part 2, the lawyer who had his wife, Zella Bell, thrown in jail due to an adulterous accusation. Remember him? Warren Woody Woodbury? Anyhow, he was also from Coopersville, Michigan, and is, I think, buried there. Ooh, I wonder if he's related to Chuck. I didn't look into that connection. Hmm. Anyway, Chuck had two younger sisters, and according to one of his sisters, Blanche, quote, the family was not the least bit musical. Mom got Chuck and Arthur Godfrey ukulele one Christmas. He was about 13 when he got his first guitar. He bought it out of the Sears catalog for, I think, $5. End quote. A neighbor that lived across the street from the Westovers, named Earl Meerman, told Richard Bark of our Detroit, quote, Chuck's dad drove for the road commission. He knew every mailbox that had a beer in it. Pause. What does that mean? He knew every mailbox that had a beer in it. I was really trying to figure that statement out. Like, were people paying this man off and putting beer in the mailboxes? Or was that something people used to do? Is that supposed to make it sound like this man was an alcoholic? I, I don't know. If that's like an old-timey thing that people used to say, please let me know. Anyhow, according to Earl, Mr. Burt Westover was not supportive of his son's hobby. Back to Earl Meerman. Quote, you get that God-blank guitar out of here, he told his son. Chuck would later say, maybe if he hadn't said, get that guitar out of here, I wouldn't have been interested in playing. Maybe I'd be driving a truck instead. End quote. The boy's mother was more understanding. It's okay, son, she said. You can sing for me. (laughs) That was part of actually what Earl Meerman said, but I don't know if she really ever said that. So when Chuck did get his guitar, he didn't have a pick, and he would play until his fingers bled. Then he would use pieces of cardboard. He also loved to play in the bathroom. And I don't mean while he was going to the bathroom, but he just loved the acoustics there. According to his high school principal, Russell Conran, quote, Charles played his guitar everywhere he went, at football games, in class, in the hallways, at noon hour, everywhere. I finally had to allow him time to play in the boys' locker room so that he wouldn't distract his fellow classmates. End quote. Chuck did not play football, but instead was a water boy for the team. And I guess while he was supposed to be watering, he brought his guitar to the games for entertainment. Can you imagine, like, some kid playing guitar? Maybe he did it, like, in between plays, but again, can you imagine? It's a one-man band just sitting there strumming along instead of... Anyway, all right. When he was a senior in high school, Chuck asked a girl named Karen to go to prom with him. She said yes, but two weeks later, just before the day of the dance, Karen said, just kidding, and she dumped him for a different boy. And not just a different boy, but a rival of Chuck's. I'm not sure what that means, his rival. This isn't a Marvel movie here, but wow, Karen, what a bold move. Also, before we dog on Karen, I have a confession that I maybe did the same thing before my senior prom. Sort of. But anyhow, this heartbreak of Chuck's lasted a lifetime, apparently. Oh man, I hope my first date got over it. He went into a depression, and according to his website, his songs would later result from his feelings of early loss, hurt, and betrayal. Youch. In fact, I think I'm listening to one of those songs right now as I was typing this. It's called Breakup 
and the man is pissed. But don't go searching for that song because that would be cheating. Chuck had something else a bit unique going for him. He had a high falsetto note that he could hit, and he could hit it okay-ish. I wouldn't say he was super awesome with the falsetto note, but sometimes when he hit it, it hit, you know? He claimed he taught himself to sing like this. After high school, Chuck had some random jobs of picking strawberries for the local fruit farms, and he drove a flower delivery truck. But in 1954, Chuck got married to Shirley Nash, and then he was drafted into the U.S. Army. While in Germany, Chuck joined the Army's Get Up and Go radio program. He also played in a band called the Cool Flames. He wasn't the best singer, but his guitar playing was stellar, and he won many awards for it. Chuck also played a Christmas show at a local orphanage, exhibiting, quote, an early sign of his compassionate side. After returning to Michigan, Chuck and Shirley settled down in Battle Creek. He did not make cereal, but he did work at the Brunswick Furniture Factory, hammering feet onto chairs as a line worker. He then became a forklift driver, but all these jobs were boring. In 1958, he began selling carpets by day and played guitar at night for the Moonlight Ramblers. They played at a club called the High-Low Club in Battle Creek. Over the course of the next five years, Chuck was in several bands, played in several clubs, and met several people. He was asked to record a demo in 1960, but became too nervous and couldn't get any good takes. His session was scrapped, and he fell into a depression. The weird thing was that the demo tapes he had recorded were sent to an acquaintance of Chuck's named Ali McLaughlin, a DJ in Ann Arbor, Michigan. McLaughlin had played a couple of Chuck's songs on his station and had met Chuck a few times at the high-low club in Battle Creek. Also, there is way more to the story, but I am just super simplifying it. Included on this demo tape was the snippet of a song not even a full song, just a snippet of one that sounded like it had been recorded and then recorded over. This song had been written by Chuck and his friend slash keyboardist Max Crook, but this snippet got McLaughlin's attention. He wanted more of that song. They eventually got Chuck back into the studio to record the song. In February of 1961, the song was released and began smashing the charts. The song was called, oh, I'm not telling you just yet, but this song made Chuck famous, and you know it. He and his wife Shirley had a son named Craig born in 1957, a daughter named Kim born in 1960, and baby Jody born later in 1961 after her daddy was an international star touring in the United States and Europe. His single, That Shall Not Be Named, was selling 80,000 records a day. In April of 1961, Chuck played his single on Dick Clark's American Bandstand, but here's something that's just crazy. Chuck's bio that was sent out to the world was written by his manager. And it changed Chuck from a married 26-year-old singer with two kids at that time into a 21-year-old superstar, unmarried and available to all young women with no attachments. Shirley, you know, his wife, you know, the mother of his two children, traveled with him on tour, but had to say she was his sister. <laughs> this made me think of Lando Calrissian. You know, in The Empire Strikes Back, when he makes a deal with the devil, Darth Vader, but Darth Vader keeps changing the deal, forcing Lando to make a statement, and I say this in my head at least once a day, this deal's getting worse all the time. Okay, maybe I'm the only Empire Strikes Back fanatic out there, but Chuck's celebrity deal was getting worse all the time. Not only could he not show off his kids and had to hide them, or his pregnant, at this point, sister, who was his wife, but and they weren't related. Please, you're not confused, right? You didn't, like, tune out, and now you're tuning back in, and you think he's married to his sister. He's not. This is his wife. 
I just hit the mic stand, but I'm not editing that out. Anyways, he was not allowed to play guitar on stage. Now remember, Chuck was not the best singer, but he was a pretty good guitar player. I mean, self-taught pretty much, but nope, quote. He had to wear iron-pressed suits and snap his fingers to the beat, just like Frank Sinatra, end quote. In April of 1961, Chuck was able to make an appearance he really wanted to make, his hometown of Coopersville, Michigan. He was asked to speak to the high school teenagers about music, his success, and his stardom. Chuck's parents joined him on stage for his speech, and Chuck felt he had proven himself to the people of his hometown. But, sigh, small towns are going to do what small towns are sometimes going to do, at least back then, in the late 50s and early 60s. Chuck wasn't allowed to sing his hit song for fear it would cause chaos among the students. And then, the mayor was supposed to present Chuck with a key to the city, but the mayor just didn't show up. The reason? Rock and roll. It was still relatively new, and while the greatest generation did not approve. Chuck went on from there to tour for many years. In 1963, he toured the UK and had a little-known band of four guys from Liverpool open for him. Yes, that's right. The Beatles opened for Chuck. They became much bigger than Chuck, but for that brief moment... Chuck was that shining star. Do you know who Chuck is yet? I'm still not ready to share, but I'm going to skip way ahead. Chuck never really had another hit like that first one. Shirley, his wife, well, she gave birth to all three babies at the old Battle Creek Community Hospital, and they lived in Brown's Trailer Park. The family then moved to Southfield, Michigan, and then to California, but Chuck and Shirley got divorced sometime in the mid-80s. See, Chuck had become an alcoholic, trying to deal with the highs and lows of fame. He also battled depression, which there were early signs, even in his youth. But 1981 was going to be a big year for Chuck's career. It was actually back on track, with help from none other than Tom Petty, who not only produced an album for Chuck, but the Heartbreakers played on the album too. Tom Petty also mentioned Chuck and Chuck's famous song in Petty's 1989 hit, Running Down a Dream. Ooh, that was a big hint. Perhaps too big. I need to be more careful. In 1988, Chuck's friend Roy Orbison died of cancer. Orbison had been part of the Traveling Wilburys, and many people thought Chuck would be the perfect replacement, but it was never to be. Chuck, who had remarried by 1990, went to his doctor for help with depression. The doctor prescribed him Prozac. On February 8, 1990, Chuck was 55 years old. He unalived himself with a gun. His widow tried to sue the drug maker, stating that Chuck would never have done this in his right mind but she later dropped the lawsuit. So that one ended sadly. But all you smarty pants listeners out there, who is this masked Michigan native from Coopersville, Michigan? Well, it's Chuck, the famous Chuck Westover. But you probably know him by his stage name, Del Shannon, who sang the number one hit song, and a Rolling Stone Top 500 of All Time song, Runaway. My Little Runaway. And if you don't know that song, why don't you just go ahead and search it up and listen to it? It's time to get educated here. Okay, so that was it. What was your score? Did you guess all of them before I told you their names? Well, guess what? There is sort of a bonus round to this little game of mine. No guessing here, but I'm about to connect the dots on some of these people. Not all the dots, but let's see if some of these Michigan men knew each other or interacted at all. We are going to start with Steven Seagal. You know, Putin's best friend, apparently. You may recall that Steven Seagal hosted the television hit Saturday Night Live with David Spade and another Michigan native, Tim Meadows. David and Tim had something to say about their fellow Michigangster, 
the truly talented Steven Seagal. According to Looper.com, which is, I'm sure, a trusted news source, but I did see this in other places as well. On April 20th, 1991, Seagal hosted Season 16, Episode 18 of Saturday Night Live. The series' longtime executive producer, Lauren Michaels, and cast members David Spade and Tim Meadows called Seagal the show's worst host ever. Spade and Meadows cited Seagal's humorlessness and his ill treatment of the cast and writers and his refusal to do a Hans and Franz sketch because the skit's title character had previously said that he could beat up Steven Seagal. Seagal has never been invited back to the show. Meadows commented, he didn't realize that you can't tell somebody they're stupid on Wednesday and expect them to continue writing for you on Saturday. From David Spade, quote, a lot of people think we're going to make fun of them. But if we're getting you on the show to host, we all want it to work. And if you make fun of yourself, this is where it gets tricky. It will benefit you, we promise you, Spade explained. And if you don't, and if you fight it too much, that was Seagal. He was too cool, and he had his image to maintain. He couldn't be relatable. He wouldn't do kung fu fighting as a cold open or a monologue. End quote. Oof. Now, let's talk about Chuck Westover, a.k.a. Del Shannon. In 1964, Chuck helped produce some demo recordings for an up-and-coming kid out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, named Bob Seeger. Yes, that's right. Del Shannon helped boost Bob Seeger's career by sending demos to Dick Clark. Isn't that fun? Let's see. Any more connections? I think the only other one I could find was Leslie King Lynch Jr., a.k.a. Gerald Ford. Obviously, he was connected to all of them because he was their president at one time. So anyway, that's it for our game of Masked Michigan Native. I actually really liked doing this episode, and I thought it would be easy, but I can never do anything easy. I'm the lady that doesn't buy cream of anything. No, 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 that's not true, because I do buy cream of wheat. But I'm whipping up a roux and chopping veggies to put in some kind of a dish, and my kids do not appreciate any of this, but I promise you they'll miss it someday and want me to make them something as adults. And I probably will. But the part I love the most doing this episode was creating family trees on Ancestry for all of these people. And I wish I was being paid to say this. God, that would be so awesome. But I mean, it really helped show that all of these individuals are just normal people with parents and grandparents and great grandparents, etc. Just normal people who have like a lot of money, a lot more money than the rest of us, more opportunities than the rest of us, more houses and probably a lot more privileged. But I have to say, I felt so sorry for Chuck, aka Del Shannon. And I also just feel like Bob Seeger and I could hang out. Like he's a super chill guy. Anyhow, before I close, I know I haven't been doing many Oops, I'm Stupid Again segments, and I promise I'm going to do some soon. I know you miss those. I did want to share this story, though, because it related to a different Oops, I'm Stupid Again, the one about the Ferris wheel. This story comes from my longtime, long-lost sister, She's not my sister, but her name is Crystal. She wrote to me and she said a couple years ago when my daughter Remy was probably five, we went up to Ashley Christmas Village in Ashley, Michigan to watch the train come in. You know, the Polar Express. Actually, no, Crystal, I had never heard of this. I mean, yes, I've heard of the Polar Express, but I didn't know there was a village that you could go to to see the Polar Express, unless this is where Thomas the Train used to come in too, because then I have been there. Anyway, not only, but this is back to Crystal's quote. Not only do they have crafts and other stuff going on, but they had some carnival rides and a small Ferris wheel. <sighs> well, my daughter wanted to ride it, so we rode it as well. The workers were starting to let people off the Ferris wheel, and as soon as those people stepped away from it, the Ferris wheel shot around in a circle. Okay, pause. Keep in mind that Crystal and her daughter are on the son of a bitch, and it's out of control. Back to Crystal's story. 
the brakes on the Ferris wheel had went out so that a couple of men began pulling and wrenching on this Ferris wheel, bringing each seat thing down and holding it while the passengers would like hop off as quickly as possible. Remy and I were the last two off of it. She was crying and screaming and scared to death. Remy, I feel you. We got stuck at the top of it for about 20 minutes in the freezing cold while they tried to get us down. End of story. And screw that. Crystal, thank you so much for sharing that with me and giving me more nightmares. Also, thank you so much for listening today. I want to thank my sponsors who are Crystal and Julie and Chris. They are considered co-producers as they help me maintain this podcast thing. But I also want to just say thank you to everybody who supports me with comments and likes and positive feedback and negative feedback, I guess. Um, I will be posting all of my sources on my Buzzsprout page. And um, there were just too many to even say to you right now. Of course, Ancestry.com was a major help. I will have another episode next week, chugging full speed ahead for four more before the end of the year, and I might have to release two in the same week. It's going to be okay. Anyhow, join me next week for more Where They Stood. (laughs) 